Trevor Parton is an earth literacy educator and founder of the Centre for Ecology and Spirituality at Glenburn, which is outside Melbourne in the foothills of the Great Dividing Range on Tungurong land. Any amount of facts you might learn about climate change is not going to change people. People will change if they know their intimacy with the world and, and if they love the world. And, uh, love being one of the main factors of uh, the great universe story. Since the 1990s, Trevor's emphasis as an educator has been on what it means to be a human in an evolving universe, promoting a spirituality which recognises the intimacy we need to nourish the sacred world and the environment of which we are an essential part. We spoke to Trevor from his current residence in Melbourne. Because this interview was recorded at Trevor's apartment, some of the noise from the surrounding units can be heard during the interview. Apologies for these slight distractions, they could not be helped. Uh, welcome Trevor to the Thresholds podcast. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. So we'll jump right in. What were your earliest spiritual experiences and how did they shape your way of being? Well, back in the 1940s, um, I, I guess I was a, a member of, of a family which was probably reproduced right across Australia, a Catholic family, observant and, um, you know, devoted to the church and uh, you know, surrounded by the devotions and music and colour of Catholicism. My mother was a daily mass goer, so I, I used to go with her. And I became an altar server and um, became the head altar server, actually, which was quite a distinction. And as well as coming from this Catholic tradition, did you have any, do you have any memories of some profound spiritual experiences that shaped your path later on? Well, yes, in as much as uh, my learning days in school, uh, I was very focused on science, and in a sense still am. Uh, it was one of my passions. And uh, to, to, to me, this, the study of the science was the study of the, the bigger, wider world, you know, the, the beautiful synchronicities of, of mathematics and science. So, so science was more the guiding principle in your life in some ways? Well, in those days, you didn't call it spirituality. But um, some of the wise people I've, I've read, notably Teilhard de Chardin, uh, he said, uh, the, scientific adventure, the scientific venture has been one big meditation on the universe. So, so I guess I was meditating and delving into the universe of which I found myself a part. I just wanted to go back to something that you mentioned in conversation with me. Um, you mentioned that you come from a family of three brothers and you all entered the Christian brother tradition. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on your family and your family background. Yes, um, it's a cultural issue. Back in the 40s and 50s, uh, the Catholic Church, for example, was a doing well 
we didn't have the problems that are facing it now in terms of abuse and so on, it wasn't difficult for young people to feel inspired to join the priesthood or the sisterhood or the, uh, the, the brotherhood of the religious life. In my family, though, there were three boys and uh, the eldest boy uh, joined the Christian brothers. He was influenced by them, in fact, to join. And then my middle brother went along and joined also. I felt myself drawn to church service, thinking of the priesthood, but I finished up settling on the teaching kind of element. Um, brothers, Christian brothers, are not to be identified as priests, but they, they teachers have always taught in schools, a bit like the way in, in the religious sisters they mostly taught, although many of them, of course, were, were conspicuous in the care for the sick and in hospitals and aged care. They, they, they still are. So in, the, in those days, the um, idealism was strong. It wasn't hard to recruit people. They got hundreds into the time. Um, and eventually you founded the Centre for Ecology and Spirituality at Glenburn. Can you tell us a bit about the Glenburn Centre for people who haven't heard of it before? Yes, I can. Um, at the end of my teaching career, around about the 1960s, uh, a number of us, and when I say us, some friends that I had were very struck by the writings of Teilhard de Chardin, typically the book The Phenomenon of Man, which if you were a biologist made, uh, made good sense. Uh, and uh, as soon as I had read that volume, I purchased 24 copies and immediately taught it to my year 12 students. And um, shortly after, my friends and I encountered the writings of Thomas Berry and Brian Swim, The Universe Story. And that was a, a major work of writing. The first time I think anybody had put together in a poetic kind of way, the known history of the universe. And uh, it knocked quite a few of us off our horses, you might say. And uh, we began to study his work in the early 90s. And we'd meet monthly. We, we instituted a thing called Walk the Land. And so we'd walk, um, interesting walks. And after the walk, we'd, we'd discuss the teachings and writings of Thomas Berry. And uh, it, it wasn't just brothers, Christian brothers who did this. There were a number of other people too, who subsequently uh, uh, began other movements in Melbourne. In fact, Melbourne, I think, became a little bit of a centre of concentrated um, learning about Thomas Berry. Anyway, so eventually two of us or three of us decided we would ask the leadership group of Christian brothers, could we buy a property and could we teach spiritual ecology? And uh, fortunately, um, the Christian brothers at this time were already sympathetic to this kind of thinking, which was a key to what we wanted. And uh, beforehand, I went overseas 
California and studied for a master's degree in culture and spirituality, which was a real eye-opener. And then we came back and we bought a lovely property at Glenburn, 15 acres of bush, open bush, with a creek running through it, resident wallabies, echidnas, possums, birds, um, a really beautiful place with a, a modest dwelling on it and we were able to start doing retreats immediately. That's roughly the, the origin of the centre and it's um, been going for 18 years. We've just closed it as a spiritual centre at the end of uh, 2018. So what propelled you to start the centre, as well as the, the writings that you've mentioned that inspired you? What, what propelled you to start the centre? The church in the year 2000 uh, was not thinking ecologically. You know, today we have a, a beautiful encyclical from Pope Francis, which is a very ecologically, eco, ecological and, and uh, full, of, full of deep meaning. But in those days, ecology wasn't really accepted. And um, oh, we had a little bit of friction with the bishop, who didn't think we should be wasting our time messing around with ecology. And, and so that was the problem in the first few years. But um, fortunately, we began to start our retreats and events there. And people were ready for it. And they came in good numbers. And uh, over these 18 years, we've sort of created a community of people who uh, really um, wanted to continue being nurtured in this new cosmology. We call it a new cosmology. How is the world constituted? What did science tell us about the world? And what do we conclude about how the human has a place in the world. And uh, this, this kind of thinking is a rich field to uh, uh, pursue the non-dual thinking of the mystics and in many ways the Buddhist thinking uh, that we are all a part of one big, if you like, divinity we share with each other very close connections and that um, the, the, the denial of this can lead to so much uh, dysfunction in the world. I, I would say, for example, our lack of attachment to the created order has given us climate change and uh, we don't respect and love the earth anywhere near the way we should. and. Uh, any amount of facts you might learn about climate change is not going to change people. People will change if they know their intimacy with the world and, and if they love the world. And uh, love being one of the main factors of uh, the great universe story. What was the, what was the goal of the centre? The goal of the centre was to, to, to promote a spirituality that might be termed holistic, that is uh, 
truly human, um, not too much of a transcendent religious flavour. In fact, uh, if I would describe myself, I am not a highly religious person. Um, I think holistic spirituality for me includes so many things. Typically, with a group that would come to Glenburn, first thing in the morning, with some groups, we'd hike up the nearby hill and watch the sun rise. And we'd face the sun in silence. And while the sun rose, we'd commence Tai Chi, or more correctly, Qigong Shibasa, which is, a, if you like, a form of Tai Chi. And uh, that was always a very spiritual experience to face the rising sun as you do deep breathing and uh, moving your arms and body uh, in, in motion. And we'd have meditation walks too. I'd, I'd read them a, a short instruction and then send them out into the forest to walk for an hour before lunch perhaps. And uh, they used to enjoy that tremendously because not many people go for a walk in the forest for an hour by themselves in a reflective kind of way. So these all things are holistic spirituality. Before you mentioned the universe story and how instrumental um, that understanding was to founding Glenburn, for those who aren't familiar with the universe story, do you want to give a brief explanation? Yes. Well, now, how do I introduce people to the universe story? By and large, the average person in the street is, is cosmologically ignorant. They have a vague notion that the world began a long time ago, um, actually um, almost 15 billion years ago. But the way we do this is to uh, have a, a little ritual called the Cosmic Walk. And on, on a fine day, I would have laid out a monk in the paddocks a long rope, you know, many of hundreds, hundreds of feet long. And on that I would have, with cards, uh, the events that took place in the history of the universe as we know it. Um, people refer to the Big Bang, or more poetically, the Great Flaring Forth, and then the story of the stars. And uh, so as people walk along this rope, we stop at each of these stations and um, there will be perhaps some, some recitation or there is some very, in fact, there's some very good music, um, which a lot of people wouldn't know. There's one there, when life began, um, Elvis Presley has a very nice lyric which is termed life, and uh, so we'd play Elvis Presley's Life. Somewhere out in empty space, long before the human race, something stirred. A vast and timeless source began. Uh, at, an at another point, we might actually do a, a simple dance when we pass the water, the creek, and uh, say, over the period of an hour, or a little bit longer than an hour, I'd walk people through the universe story. 
and at the end, almost invariably, people were gobsmacked at learning this, their story, the story they're a part of, and having that presented to them in a holistic kind of way, celebrating each of the steps with uh, music or poetry or dance. And uh, I didn't invent that. It, it's, it's something that I inherited from my studies in the US. In fact, it was first practiced by uh, Miriam McGillis, who was a, a Dominican sister who ran a place called Genesis Farm. And so we're grateful to her for setting up the, the, the basis of this cosmic walk. But that was central to everything I did. And almost to every lecture I did, I'd refer to the I'd refer to the universe story because it's so fundamental uh, to people to know their origins, their really, really deep origins in deep time, and to know where the universe was probably going. So you've written that the Glenburn Centre was not so much religious, but spiritual in a broader sense. What does this mean for you? Oh, well, I continue to be a practising Catholic, um, al although uh, personally I am rather uncomfortable with the slowness of the church to really address and to integrate the new cosmology um, and uh, you might say I have got into trouble for telling what I call the new cosmology. You know, and the new cosmology doesn't involve the Garden of Eden. It doesn't involve Adam and Eve. It doesn't involve the eating of the apple. There is no fall. There is no original sin. And you have to rethink and reformulate the meaning of Jesus within the whole Christian theological thinking. And uh, this is something that the church even now is, is very slow to address. So how does this sit for you as a Christian brother and for the other Christian brothers? Um, well, uh, as a Christian brother, I've got no trouble. Uh, I have several Christian brother friends who think as I do, um, and of course there are others who don't think as I do. In any large group you'll always find quite a spectrum of uh, understanding of things. But, um, uh, and uh, the average churchgoer um, remains broadly ignorant of the new cosmology because it's never preached in the church. It is never preached in the sermons. And this is the, this is the place where teaching should take place and where spiritual formation is engendered. But um, I don't think I have ever heard in, in, in my almost 80 years of life, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon which addressed our place in the created order um, which is not anything but dualistic. And, um, yeah, um, I, I'm, I'm sorry about that, and it's one of the few things which distresses me. So how is this new story of cosmology 
um, received? And what were some of the typical responses from people attending your programs? Um, I, I found that the new cosmology, um, if you like, taught very sympathetically and carefully, and, and I've been a teacher all my life, and I, and I think a good teacher, taught carefully, people are thirsting for this new thinking. They're absolutely thirsting for it. Um, like myself, a lot of, say, Catholic people are not happy with with the way, um, you know, the Catholic Church has stayed so conservative, um, so denying of um, wider thinking, um, the place of women in the church. That's, that's been so slow to change that people are hanging out for a new view of, of the place of the human in the big story. And, the, and by and large, yeah, they're, they're gobsmacked by it, and they say that. They use language like that. Glenburn sprung out of a Catholic religious context and was trying to do something very new within being spiritual but not religious. Um, what were some of the challenges that you faced um, within this context? Well, uh, early in the piece, um, when we produced our website and our brochure, we, we, we were summoned to the, uh, the Chancery, as we call it, the Bishop's Place in, <laughs> in Melbourne. And uh, um, we, were, we were accused of, um, of being, you know, too forward in our thinking, not respecting the great dogmas of the church. Uh, in particular, uh, we were accused of not stressing the centrality of the salvific mission of Jesus, which is quite correct because orthodox thinking sees the mission of Jesus as a, um, making up for the, the fall in the Garden of Eden and washing us free of original sin. Well, now, for, for over 50 years, since the times of Tyre de Chardin, you know, um, fall and original sin, you know, really needed to be rethought because there was no Garden of Eden, you know, there was no specific sin of the human. There was no passing on of this to, to their subsequent children. And uh, to make matters worse, of course, um, it was, it was reckoned that original sin was passed on to the next generation by the very act of procreation, which, um, you know, it was most unfitting. When the bishop called you in, uh, what, what happened after that? So after the bishop called you in and accused you of these things, oh, well, um, what was the follow-up there? Um, the follow-up was that our head brother, our province leader, wrote a letter to the bishop, um, a conciliatory letter, um, and uh, I think the bishop felt he had done what he needed to do. I don't know how convinced he was of, 
of you know our condemnation and so that that went very well at the same time um the bishop was in, in a particular bit of correspondence he also criticized a group called earth song of which i was a part and uh, that involved several religious orders mainly orders of women so uh, they also replied to the bishop um, and they weren't shy in the manner in which they responded. I'll leave it at that. Did you know that we've interviewed um, several of the um, Earthsong yes. women on our podcast? Yes, and I've, yeah. I've listened to bits of those and uh, Anne and Pat and I are very close. We, we, we kind of formed Earthsong originally back in the earlier part of this this new century and uh, we've often worked together with presentations. Um, so you also remain faithful as a member of the Christian Brothers all this time despite many challenges within the group. How do you understand the relevance of religious life in the context of an evolving universe and how do you manage to stay within the tradition while inviting in new ways of thinking? Well, I've never had any trouble within the Order of Christian Brothers. By and large, our leadership team, both internationally and nationally, um, are very much uh, for ecological thinking and of learning the universe story and the new cosmology. But... Um, Within the, within the church, uh, the way I see it myself is that the religious orders have always been uh, progressive in what they did. The Christian Brothers, for example, were founded, or 1802, let us say, uh, for the education of poor boys in Ireland, which was a crying need. And at about the same time, the Presentation Sisters were doing this for, for the girls. And the Mercy Sisters, um, or orders that were had their origins in, in, say, Ireland. And so the religious orders have always looked around for what needed to be done. Um, and uh, so they sit within the tradition of Catholic Church, but sometimes they're, they're right on the edge, liminal, kind of groups that are prepared to to attack when I say attack or to deal with uh, problems of the times now I'm I'm very happy to to say that in in these terms the Christian brothers were willing to address the ecological needs of, of our world and we're doing so way back in say 1990. Their thinking was right there, and that um, they they were keen to adopt some move to address um, the new spirituality, which was ecological. Um, ecological, of course, meaning deeply connected um, to somehow get a better connection to the created order, which is our real spiritual home. Um, the human was not put on the earth by God, like put onto a finished earth 
The human has come out of the earth along with all the other species and any separation of the human from creation is a, a false uh, dualism. We have to see ourselves as part of the environment, part of the community of life. And this, this is a new spiritual view, if you like. Uh, the older traditional view was that our true home was heaven and you just had to get there and you didn't worry too much about the earth. Um, but, but in fact, um, if you like, heaven is in some senses the Garden of Eden. Um, paradise is not in some transcendent realm, but it's right here and now. And this is, this is the thinking of the mystics and of people like Joseph Campbell, great scholar of myth, one of my favourite um, people I read. And um, Joseph Campbell was not overtly religious. You know, he was the kind of person for whom a deep appreciation of the, um, of the human through the study of mythology. And in fact, by and large, and I agree with him, Christianity is um, in many senses one mythology amongst many and we need to enrich ourselves by a far wider myth the myth of the planet the myth of our story and you know i think the aboriginal tribes have done this for eons of time and we need i think to uh, learn from them Now, you've mentioned you're a poet as well as a retreat facilitator and earth literacy educator. Uh, would you like to share some of your work with us? I could do that. The, the poetry I write has um, been influenced by a couple of other great poets. Um, the Sufi mystics of the, uh, I think it's around about the 12th century, um, Rumi, and Hafiz, and uh, in more recent times, the recently deceased Mary Oliver, um, who all, all wrote um, from their own reflectivity. And so I, I try to emulate some of that. I've, I've got a, a poem here entitled The Fire. I gazed into the fire and wondered, what is this energy coursing through the veins of history like blood and bathing me with warmth? This is its last gasp, for heat is the end of the energy line. Entropy, disorder, waves end, dissipation. And what did this energy do after its journey from the sun. It warmed the earth around the seed, made sugar in the leaves, wood in the stems and trunks, until the tree stood up and said, I am, I am. A tree, that is, and carbon, oxygen, and sunlight too, 
and bits of you. And I am supernova, true, and galaxy. And whatever came before that, I am, I am, I am, I am. Mm, wonderful. <laughs> Some agree better than others. Yeah, feel free to share whichever you're drawn to. Yeah, I've got one here which is a light-hearted poem entitled Soul. Because soul, of course, is a very um, ethereal word. The, the Greeks spoke of soul, and the poets speak of soul, and they don't always mean the same thing. So here is the poem, Soul. My love, I made the world again for you this morning. As I walked, everything spoke to me, asking me to give them a share of my soul. The sore-legged magpie said, Please give me some seed, or I will fly away. Your compassion gives meaning to my life. The wallaby looked at me from a few metres away and said, Smile at me, please. Speak to me, or I will hop away and sulk all day in the bushes for want of love. Tree said to me, My brother wind is rustling my branches, and I need your ears to listen to this so God can hear my morning prayers. Little flower hidden in the bush, says, Today I have bloomed for you. I am waiting for you to give me some soul, so that I might have soul also. In that poem, there's a real sense of the earth speaking to you. Yes. Um, is that how, how do you, when you're, in your writing process, how, how do you listen to earth before writing? That's a spiritual practice that anybody can do. You can, you can talk to the trees, to the streams, to the mountains. Um, I have one other one here which, which I will, I will um, read because it's a conversation between me and a tree. I did a lot of bushwalking in Tasmania, and that meant you had to face a lot of a lot of weather, very cold, very wet, sometimes and mostly very beautiful. Mm. So, in my seventieth year, I wrote this poem entitled "Seventy-Year-Old Tree." My fingers were numb in the cold dawn of the Tasmanian hills. Hands in pockets didn't do. Hands held to the sun in Tai Chi didn't do. Meanwhile, a 70-year-old tree behind me was warming itself in those brittle rays. Spoke to me kind of softly. Try me, he said. So, back against the tree, hands behind me, both of us standing mute in the sun's kindness, warmth in front, warmth behind. Do trees have spirits 
Can they speak? Silly question, some say. Is God a spirit? Can he speak? Also a silly question. Now the tree said to me, We have grown older together, you and I, but I know stuff you never will. Anything, everything, his spirit can speak, said the 70-year-old stringy bark tree. Thank you. <laughs> I got that image in my head in from from the Bible of the burning bush speaking to Moses as well. <laughs> Just then. <laughs> Is there in your writing do you draw upon um the Christian tradition as well as earth speaking to you? The mystical tradition, the Hindu tradition, the tradition of the Far East. I I like to include the thinking of all of these traditions, mm. mainly because the Western tradition is plagued by dualistic thinking. But as Joseph Campbell said, east of Suez, everyone knows that all is one. <laughs> so Trevor, if someone is trying to deepen their ecological consciousness, what do you recommend for them to practice daily? Well, it depends upon, to some extent, upon the person and their circumstances. Um, you can practice, you can do spiritual practices in the city, but of course, an ecological awareness is probably best practice where you can be in the ecology of nature. Um, some traditional practices. Uh, American Indian practices uh, is to get up and to greet the dawn. Um, I would do this on occasion with groups um, and it was a very rich experience. Uh, but it means giving time, uh, giving time to be, to wander amongst the wider ecology, whether it's, the, if you're a water person, it might be the sea. If you're a a mountain person that might be the mountains. If you're a river person, it might mean sitting by the river. But that exposure to that part of the universe of which you feel yourself to be most closely, closely drawn, time, time spent in the ecology of nature, uh, with, with the knowledge that you and the nat nature you are in are, are one. Doesn't involve words; it involves paying attention, leaving yourself open to the amazement of the smallest thing, listening to every sound, feeling every vibration of the earth, uh, the different textures under your feet, the subtle colours of things. Um, this is all a, a kind of meditation. But uh, closeness, closeness to the earth means being with the earth. So it's a very, very simple spiritual practice. Um, there are other, one, other ways too, of course. If you're a writer, you might write of how you feel about your place in, in the nature. 
Do you, do you know Mary Oliver's um, poem, Wild Geese? Yes, I do. You do? Yes. The world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, announcing over and over your place in the family of things. So your place in the family of things is uh, what is worth nurturing. And what, what part do you think activism plays within eco spiritual ecology and, and in your practices? What, what role has activism played? Oh, well, I've, I've been at the barricades on more than one occasion in my slightly fitter days. Um, I've faced up to the police, I've had barriers. But uh, th th these days I sign petition, petitions and th things like that, online petitions, you know, trying to join my forces to the uh, savings of the forest and things. But to do nothing is not an option. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and what practices have you yourself taken up over the years and, and what do you practice now? I, I like I like to do Tai Chi. I don't do it every day, but I like to do it. It's good for the body, and it's good for the soul. Um, and uh, I take a daily walk in the park, which is very close to where I live, and I, I do it with my brother, who's much older than I, and whose faculties are gradually diminishing. But he too loves his his daily walk, and uh, so they are the kind of practices that I uh, still value so very much. I'm not I'm not much of a praying man these days. Though the my religious days belong to the past largely, and I I, I don't think religion, with its rampant dualism, is something that I really. I really like. Um, uh, I don't believe in the perhaps fairly normal personal God that we're sort of recommended to um, to deal with. Um, I'm, I'm much more of a um, well, a monist, M-O-N-I-S-T, a monist where all, all, almost um, um, almost an animist. <laughs> But not an animist, almost a pantheist, but not quite a pantheist. <laughs> <laughs> and but so, monist. What does monist mean? A, a monist is a, it's a yeah, body of thinking, which says basically everything is one, that we are manifestations of whatever divine reality underlies the universe, and that there is one reality, which is shared by all one consciousness which is shared by all and it's the opposite of duality which tends to separate the mythological god from his in inverted commas creation and from his creation of man woman uh, all this separation and the kind of um, thinking and theology that surrounds that separation Monism is uh, uh, refers to that body of thinking which is more unitive. Mm -hmm. 
it's more characteristic of um, Buddhist, Hindu, Confucian thinking. It's a wonderful explanation. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> and of such a deep and beautiful practice and mm. philosophy. Um, mm. Mm. Um, so your time at Glenburn has come to a close. Where are you headed to now in your thinking and in your spirituality? Well, I find myself uh, drawn to deep thinking about what I've regarded as the important things, you know, the, uh, the kind of unit, unit of thinking, um, the kind of thinking of the, uh, the mystics, Meister Eckhart, Nicholas of Cusa, and there aren't, in fact, many more. Um, Christianity has had a long mystical tradition. And while non-dualism is implied in many ways in all the mystics' thinking, um, the ones that stand out are, of course, Master Eckhart of all, of all, of all the mystics. I suppose with, with the closing at, at Glenburn, it's... A the end of a chapter in a way of spiritual ecology in Melbourne for, for that particular centre. Um, where, where do you see or where do you look to within spiritual ecology um, for, for hope for the future? Well, you don't look for it in religion, except in as much as the, uh, the recent work of Pope Francis you know, I regard his his encyclical Laudato Si as being, you know, one of the better bits of writing about spiritual ecology. But I'm not sure that it will be taken up rapidly. I do know that some schools, and I do know that uh, Rahman in Bathurst has is picking this up in a big way, and that. Um, you know, there are little pockets of um, people. Uh, the people who used to run Earth Song are doing their bit now in separate fields. And uh, it remains a fertile field, I think. But, um, yeah, it it's, uh, takes a while. It takes a while. And what do you think is the main issue in Australia for the that kind of area of spiritual ecology? Where, where do you think is there work now that needs to be carried out? Hmm. Well, I despair of politics to some extent. I am aware that there are some people in Parliament now. Um, there's a woman senator, and I can't quite think of her name. She used to be an activist in the Eastern forests of Victoria, and she woke up to the fact that if anything was to change, she would need to go into politics and make the change, legislate the changes, and that's why she is in the Senate. And uh, there are people like that who uh, are intent to make a difference, 
and think it's a part of their calling and they should devote their energies to making a difference. I think we need to try and at the same time not politicise our ecology, which we're doing in a big way. You know, we've got to get it out, out of politics. And people are calling for this. They're calling for bipartisan care of the planet. And that's what we've really got to try and do. Um, and what do you think is the future of spiritual ecology or this kind of ecological awareness oh, on, a, a, on a wider global context? <clears throat> it's got a big future, I think. People are waking up to it. And um, people in their 20s and 30s and 40s uh, are waking up to this in a way they would not have done 20 or 30 years ago. So I think it's got a, got a bright future. And there are some good leading lights. You mentioned in conversation Joanna Macy, and there's John Seed, and there's uh, David Attenborough, all pursuing different roles in uh, bringing to our attention the wonders of the universe. We have to get to the stage when we're struck with wonder at the universe and inspired to a deep affection for it. So if you could share... Just one piece of advice for others that are on this path, this spiritual path, this path of um, trying to wake up to a broader ecological consciousness and awareness. Um, what would that piece of advice be? Well, it's, it's a new kind of field we're entering into. We need guides. And there, there are guides. Um, I... I've had my share of guides in my exposure to these things. People will find different others who will, who will help them. Um, there are processes that go on in different areas. You mentioned one in the Otways. And John Seed runs workshops, weekend workshops. And uh, anybody who's really keen to pursue this should try and uh, expose themselves to these wonderful guides that are available to us. Um, before we finish, is there anything at all that you would like to say or something that you feel you haven't touched on that you would like people to hear? The people who've influenced me, uh, particularly in recent times, has been typically Gregory Bateson, who's not well known, I think it was one of the one of the eminent thinkers of the last century. He, uh, the title of his books are uh, telling. Um, one of his last books was "Where Angels Fear," which, of course, is short for "Where Angels Fear to Tread." But it, "Where Angels Feared," an epistemology of the sacred, was the subtitle. Now, that's very telling. Um, I've meditated a lot on the term sacred because it is not a theological term. Sacredness is a, a feeling that anybody can experience, uh, that numinous experience of something beyond self. And that uh, here, here is a second or third generation atheist talking about sacred things. And... Uh, 
I think that's got to be where a lot of our thinking has got to go. Um, for me, the trees, the forests, the beauty of things uh, I find sacred. Um, nobody can tell you what you have to regard as sacred. It's the discovery that each of us will make in our own place and time. And that this, this can be the focus of our our spiritual practice, our, our, our spiritual feelings. You, you're devoted to sacred. Jean Hurston tells of a story how she asked a little American Indian girl, what do you find most sacred? And the little girl said, my mother. And you know, that's, that was a beautiful thing for the little, little girl to say. And if you'd asked that little girl 30 years later, she might have said something else. But at that time and place, to her, the mother was the sacred thing. And what is your sacred thing? Uh... Well, this might sound a, a bit odd, but the sacred thing is the divine which lives in me and you. That doesn't sound odd. That sounds beautiful. <laughs> thank you thank you so much for this interview <laughs> the thresholds team at rahamim live work and create this podcast on the lands which have always been and always will be wiradjuri country we give our respect and gratitude to the elders past present and emerging who continue to teach us ancient wisdom for living in harmony within earth's limits Rahamim Ecology Centre is an ecological ministry of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea, facilitating a new worldview for our times and our relationship with the natural world through education, spirituality and advocacy. For more information about us and our programs, please visit www.rahamim.org.au. The Thresholds podcast is edited by Anastasia Freeman.